Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. This week's guest is John Norfolk, head of coaching at one of Great Britain's most successful Olympic programs, British Cycling. You can outperform your competition by either training in a different way or having a different philosophy or a different approach to performance, or you can do the same things but do them slightly better. I heard a quote the other day about someone who said, you can't give from an empty cup. So when I'm feeling good, when I'm feeling energised and I've looked after myself, I can, can be more to more people. If an athlete prefers cocoa pops for breakfast as opposed to the perfect blended muesli or whatever, genuinely how much impact is that having on performance? And I suppose it's kind of choosing your, choosing your battles, really. John is another of our guests that has experienced competing and coaching in different cultures and different environments. Having worked previously with the Australian track cycling team and been head coach of the hugely successful Great Britain Paralympic cycling programme, he was also both an international cyclist in his own right and cycled as a tandem partner, including setting a world record in the kilo at the 2008 Paralympic World Cup. We chatted about coaching the athlete in front of you, not the programme, the importance of having plenty of tools available to you as a coach, individualisation and performance planning, as well as how he measures and monitors performance. He's really easy to chat to and a very humble guy. And I start with asking what excites him? Having been an athlete myself and transitioned from being an athlete into coaching and working directly with athletes, that's the bit that energises you. And to feel that you've had an impact on people's performances is, is the why behind what I do still. Although some of the work I do, some of the decisions I make feel a bit removed from that. Hopefully everything goes to contributing to that in a, in a different kind of way. But yeah, really exciting to see how coaches plan, challenge themselves, really stretch themselves and, and to see that plan in action on the cold face at a race and you see it come to fruition. It's a really great thing to have played a part in or be able to support. So yeah, it's, it's really good to see. If we were to reverse 20 years, 2003, did you start as a pro athlete on the pathway? Yeah, so I was a bit of an anomaly, I suppose. I, I was... I did my A-levels, I went to university and then had a few years of, I, I kind of trained and I was, I was going to say coach myself, but I just kind of trained myself really and had a constant experiment with what worked for me, what didn't work for me in different environments. And then, and then made it onto the, yeah, the world-class performance plan at the time. Yeah, I think 2002, 2003, just before the Athens Olympics. And yeah, do you know what, if I was to be honest with myself about what my ambition was as an athlete and where I thought I could go, I would never think would have been able to compete at, at that level. I've, I've never been someone to set a long-range target and work towards it and always had the belief that I would have made it. I, I got my head down, worked hard, had a look up and go, oh, okay, that was good. Get my head down again. I've learned some stuff, changed some things. And then each year, just kind of progressed and looked back and had an amazing journey. But yeah, so I suppose I went from a period of, of training and coaching myself to being part of a, a, a world-class performance plan, which was at, at the time at the early stages of that kind of structured kind of British cycling way of creating performance. So yeah, it was really interesting to be able to kind of contrast those two things and, and work out what was what was right for me. Yeah, so how did that start then? Were you, were you literally just on your bike cycling and were you at a club and it went from there? Kind of, yeah. My, so my dad used to ride about, I'm from a cycling family. So my dad used to ride years ago com competitively and as a lot of sons do, you kind of do the opposite of, what your dad did for quite a while. So I played a lot of other sports, play, played a bit of rugby, bit of union, bit of league, bit of cross-country running and, and kind of fell back into cycling naturally. And then just I just did what I enjoyed, really. I, and then I think as 
results kind of suggested I would be better at shorter distances and longer distances and certain attributes that kind of shaped how I developed and trained. So I became a, a sprinter on, on the track. I used to do cyclocross and grass track racing, stuff that I enjoyed really. And I suppose you do more of what you enjoy. So I did more of the race that I enjoyed and, and I suppose rode in a way in which I could, I was successful and yeah, enjoy that part as well. And so each year it just seemed to kind of progress and get a little bit better, really. I don't kind of blow my own trumpet or anything, but I get my head down and work hard and let my legs do the talking, really. And in some races that works out and others it it didn't. But I think I was always quite good at working out why it didn't and maybe what I needed to do slightly differently for next time. So I think on, on reflection, I've lost a lot of races in my career and I've just missed out on quite a few opportunities. But I think that's been the reason why I feel like I've learned a lot because I've been in a position where I've had to work out why I didn't do so well, what the others did well, and then what I maybe needed to do next time. I was always in that position where I had to learn to survive, I think, rather than it it come easy, which is why I kind of enjoy that learning journey and and I suppose kind of supporting other people on that journey as well. You wouldn't have had, you know, the internet would have been in its early early days back then. So your ability to be able to correct stuff would just have been from your sense of what felt right to change and any data that you would have looked at? The data I used was feedback on myself, comparing myself to others. And yeah, I suppose kind of like race data would be how how I created the results, how I rode, what my strengths were, what the people's strengths were, and then how you'd you'd go around beating them, playing to your own strengths. So yeah, there was not a lot of data. I wouldn't say I'd come from a scientific background. It'd be more on, on feel, which is a kind of human data. But like you say, I think it's interesting you say that around the internet not being around, that kind of distraction-free environment where your, your presence, you work hard, you create a training session, you think about your response to that and the application of a, a few sessions back-to-back and then you've got a result or a performance and then you can look back. You, yeah, you're quite present with it. Whereas I, th- I think these days, I think in a lot of sports, cycling in particular, we've, we've got the ability to measure a thousand things. So I think um, how we how we're aware of filtering those thousand things out to concentrate on, on the one thing you need to get better at for either that session or that year. I think it's, it's probably harder to do now because like you said, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of opinion. Everyone's got the golden bullet or the answer. Whereas I think maybe before you were you're in a position where you just had to work it out for yourself or that was the journey I went through anyway. So if you, if you could go, go back with a piece of technology data or way of training Back to those days 20 years ago from stuff that you know now is there anything you'd, you'd, you'd drop in yeah that's a really good question i would naturally say that you were, we're able to measure power on a bike now so I'd, I'd naturally say being able to understand how much power created on the bike would would probably be the go-to one how much i'd actually use it though how much that would actually inform what i did or change what i did i'm not sure Really good question. Yeah, I'd probably put power measurement on the bike and I'd probably say that's maybe the one most important thing today that's the kind of maybe the strongest currency. But I think the opportunity to tune into how how I felt, how I was recovering, how my body was responding to training, I think it's really important. I think to see the athletes who've done well, I've had the privilege of working next to were really tuned into their bodies, what worked for them. People who needed two days recovery who just felt they needed it and, and trained in a certain way. Others who re- knew how to really, really dig deep. So thinking of the people I used to train with early on in the GB squad, Jason Queeley uh, and Chris Hoy, they trained in very, very different ways, but it was the right way for them. That I, th- I think understanding yourself as an athlete and I suppose as a coach, understanding the athletes that are in front of you 
for them to train in a way that works for them is really important. Did they find that stuff out then themselves without any any reference to data um, or feedback? They just found it themselves from instinctively. I think so. Yeah, both both are very both have created those experiences in very different ways. And there's probably another athlete, Craig McLean. At the time, who were, there were probably three really different versions of training, and they'd worked out through years of experimenting, but being really tuned into those experiments of what worked for them. I think the key is they they really believed in their way of training. You can there's that the kind of conversation around you can create the, the perfect training program for an athlete as a coach, or your belief that it's the perfect training program. But if the athlete doesn't really believe in it, how much they commit to it, how they respond to it. Is really different so i think that that was a really good example of three athletes who really really believed in their way of working and, and that being the right way for them and their full commitment to that program and full commitment to their recovery full commitment to the one big thing they were working on kind of created the results that, that came after that so it was really interesting to see that and then for you to sit there as a developing athlete going okay what's what's my recipe what's my way of doing it and having tried a couple of different ways yeah i think it's just opening to that kind of continual ex- experiment, isn't it? You've got the theory of, of training and training science and physical preparation, but you're also working with human beings who are who are naturally quite quite messy and, and individual and complex. And and I, and I think it just it reinforces that. I suppose it's a part of my coaching philosophy, really. It's which is you kind of coaching you're coaching a person who happens to be riding a bike rather than coaching a physical specimen cyclist. So where they live, what their family situation is, how they feel that day. It's all one recipe, isn't it? And I, you can't separate training from that. So I think it's um, being really tuned into who you're working with or, or who you can learn from, I think. Being sure of what, what you know, but also being open to what you, what you could know and what you, what you could learn, I think. In those early days then when you were, you were an athlete on the pathway and in the programme, is there anything that stuck out that was a, a game changer for you in your thinking process, both as an athlete or perhaps with one foot thinking ahead on your coaching in your next chapter? Second, a backup question on that is, did you at any of those points when you were a professional athlete, were you thinking that you were going to be a coach? I probably naturally coached, if you like. So I, I enjoyed supporting other people's performances and asking questions and, maybe, and sharing some of the things that I'd learned. So I probably, without realising it, was kind of developing my coaching as, as an athlete and I think I was fortunate in that when I was offered the coaching role I, I got the choice to end my athletic career when I did I kind of I chose when to retire if you like as opposed to it being decided for you <laughs> um, yeah. it was in the post but it but it was nice it was nice to be able to choose that so I think just thinking about your question about which what points had the biggest impact I said the two things that I would probably reflect back on would be that period of where I trained myself, did it my way and experimented. And I think when I got onto the program, I maybe maybe left a little bit too much of that behind and thought that because I'm part of a, a bigger program, that if I trained in the way that everyone else trains, it, it would kind of just, just work, if you like. So I think I, on reflection, I probably needed to be have more confidence in what worked for me previously and maybe hang on to a little bit more of that. So that was a nice contrast to compare a model of, of training which had been based on historical methods of training so German sprint programs back in the day and how the early Australian Institute of Sport adopted some of those principles and then how GB cycling adopted some of those training methodologies as well it's all a version of tradition and history whereas I wasn't really connected with that when I was kind of doing my own thing so that was really interesting 
And then probably the second biggest impact was when I was working as the, the Paralympic head coach in the run-up to the Rio Paralympics. Had a group of eight Paralympic athletes, all different events, different disabilities, and it really reinforced to me the importance of the person, the individual, and the right training for that person. Uh, and I think it was a really good opportunity to, to kind of start from scratch with some of that training as well. Thinking back how much training is built on tradition and this is the way we've always developed this kind of athlete. I think with some of the power athletes I've worked with, athletes with multiple sclerosis, athletes with cerebral palsy, athletes with one leg, one arm, you've, you've got to rethink about how you, how you train someone to squat who hasn't, who needs to be doing it their way. And so it was, it was kind of, it felt really good to have a blank sheet of paper each time. It felt like a really cool creative process to be part of. I learned a lot. What I've brought from that journey to how I work now is having a clear understanding of what, what's the performance we want to create? What, what does the event look like? And how do we want to perform in that event? Where are we now? What's the athlete that we've got now? And how do we, what does the gap look like? And how do we, how do we bridge that? What are the couple of things that we need to prioritize to, to bridge that gap? I think it's key to have a good understanding of that performance destination, but be really tuned into where you are now and what you need to do to help create that performance. And it's, it looks different for different people, even in the same event. So, yeah, I think I've probably taken a lot, a lot from that. Where would the athlete's contribution and voice start in that process? I think with the athletes who have maybe the experienced athletes, I'd, I'd probably it would be more of a partnership in terms of how we kind of co-create a program. So what's worked well in the past? What, what do you know about yourself? What are the things we've tried before? To then maybe capitalise on some of the stuff that the athletes learnt already. And then maybe with the athletes who are maybe newer on the journey, maybe it's a little bit more coach-led. And we're, we're going to start with this based on the principles of the event, but we're going to learn, learn along the way. And then I suppose with, with athletes who've done that multiple times over and over again, who've got a really good understanding of what works with them, the, the coach then becomes almost like a, a mirror where you ask the right questions at the right time to pull the programme and the, the plan out of the athlete, which I found is a really good way of getting athlete buy and if they've if they felt they've created their program which which they have in that case i think you get a really good um a good commitment to it and a, and a, a kind of strong belief in it as well and then the coach becomes someone who maybe just teases that extra bit of learning out or reflection to continue that development and yeah refine the plan i suppose i, th- I think the athletes who who have a, a strong ownership of their program and who are driving their bus and, and driving their performances forward yeah it's not um consequence that those are the athletes that do pretty well one of the things that you were talking about there in in my head uh, rang a little bell around acquiring and acquiring new skills and 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 getting rid of skills that aren't useful anymore and and with some of the athletes in the different sports and coaches that I work with you know they, they'll always say that to give an athlete a new skill is a lot easier than to stop them doing a skill that's not you know that's incorrect technique or um, a thought process and I wonder if you've got any examples of when without naming names you know an athlete that you've worked with that had something that you could see wasn't helping them and how you help them be aware of that and then almost take it away or dismantle it I've worked with a number of athletes who have have transferred from other sports in cycling so I've had the pleasure of working with athletes who have come from heptathlon and and track and field disciplines and another yeah other areas of cycling There there was one athlete who who had a background in hurdling and when 
when she started on the bike, you could still see the hurdling on the bike. So as you st- as you hurled her up for a stand for a standing start on the track, so a coach would stand behind the athlete, hold the back of the bike. There'd be a countdown. You'd let go, and the athlete would start in front of you and and ride away. So you'd have the perfect view of movement, balance, coordination, and you could still see the I think they call it the trail leg, don't they? The trail leg coming over the hurdle. So one knee will be sticking out on the on the right hand side. So what we kind of played around with and what we concentrated on in those efforts to kind of like un- unthink that was quite challenging. It, it was a, it stuck. It stuck for quite a long time. You can probably see it now if it's still on the, still on the bike. But yeah, I think I think you're right. How um, how those athletes? I suppose it's a it's, it's a, yeah it's a consequence of, of good training and good good kind of patterning, isn't it? If something sticks under under pressure, and I suppose a new sport or a new movement puts the history under pressure, doesn't it? So like you say, un Unlearning skills, yeah, I'd agree with you. It's probably trickier than adding a new one, but I suppose it's maybe how you how you add or capitalise on the skills that they currently have, as opposed to stopping a set and, and starting with a new set. Almost kind of like working to your strengths a little bit. I get that. What about off the bike? Because athletes often will have ideas on what they think is the right way to eat before competition, to you know, sleep, train, whatever it is. Um, that as you have got to understand them, there'll be stuff that you will have like built upon because they might have great, great routines or there might be other stuff that you're thinking, no, I'll, I need to change that. And um, athletes being athletes, sometimes they're, they're reluctant to change, particularly if they're winning. And it, I know it, often it's not until either they, they stop winning or don't get picked or get injured that they will listen to you. But what, just wondering if you've got any examples of that or where you've had to open up their thinking beyond what they're currently doing to help them the leverage that you can create from a a loss or an underperformance to change a habit is really strong isn't it and and i think whether it's tradition or or belief like you said the pre-race meal or or, i don't know the order in which they put the socks on before an event when that's connected and tied to a, a successful performance it's sometimes it's quite a hard thing to to unravel so i suppose stepping back from it as a coach, I would say, okay, genuinely, how much impact is this having on a performance? If an athlete prefers cocoa pops for breakfast as opposed to the perfect blended muesli or whatever, genuinely, how much impact is that having on performance? And I suppose it's kind of choosing your choosing your battles, really. Athletes who sometimes work in that space tend to have more than one thing that you might want to fix. So I suppose it's going back to that. What's the one thing that you could fix and could target, which would have the biggest impact on performance? cocoa pups might not be that thing for that for that person so i suppose it's choosing choosing your battles and understanding that people do work in different ways you do get some supremely talented athletes who who maybe don't need to do as much as someone else who maybe doesn't hasn't as much physical ability or, or, or natural talent if you like but maybe has to work harder to get to the same point so i, I think it's again it's looking at the athlete in front of you how, how they are as a person what they need to be doing as an athlete and I think it's again you could try and do everything with an athlete but I think it's picking your wings and p- picking the bits that are going to make the biggest impact I think and when you go in and, and chat to athletes about you know, giving them feedback or perhaps wanting to nudge them in a certain behavior do you have any framework around that or is it more your gut feel on when to approach an athlete to have those critical conversations I think yeah I think time is really time is really important and I think initially timing for you as, as, as with a coach or someone who's in support of the performance to step back and, okay, again, what, what's the kind of conversation you need to have? What, what's the outcome we need to create? 
where would you start with that? I tend to use that kind of future scenario quite a bit. So if we were to roll it forward and if in the example, if we were to be in the Olympic final, we, we missed out on the performance we felt we were capable of and we were to look back at particular areas that either contributed to that or maybe hindered that a little bit, what do you think we'd look back on and which areas do you think we might, we could tune up and, and tweak? Because that's obviously a situation we don't want to be in. You want to be on the start line of your, your big race, having done all you can, being, being proud of how you've worked and, and you, you're ready to perform. And I think if you're on that start line, you look back and there's, and there's things that you would tweak and change and that you already know about, now is the opportunity to do something about it. So I'd probably leverage that future state, which I used to do myself, to then come back to the present and go, okay, is this something we need to change or are we going to run the risk of keeping it as it is? So I'd probably connect with that emotional outcome to start to talk about it, I think. And I know, well, I know that you've, you have, you know, um, specialists around sports psych and psychiatry and performance but as a coach like you know that we have to have that in our locker the ability to be able to to tap into the mental side of things is that something that you've you know how, how have you approached that on your journey have you got better at it is it a strength you know how do you use it if I was to target an area that I think I've got better at but I'm still working on is when you need to be super clear with an athlete and create that kind of challenging conversation when you when you reflect back and you think yeah when you said it to me like that I definitely took a step back and I heard what you said. I think naturally I'd work with people. It would be more of a kind of a collaborative, maybe a gentler approach. And again, using that kind of like emotional outcome approach sometimes. I think in the instances where I've done something which doesn't feel as natural for me, which is be very clear, very direct. I think that that, that works. I think it's understanding the person that you're talking to. And like you say, having that, that range of ability to approach it in different in different ways. So knowing when you need to be very clear, very direct and to the point to make sure that you've been heard and there is a, there's a reaction to that or whether it's maybe sitting shoulder to shoulder with someone and, and talking something through, maybe with something that's about a bit more complex or a bit more, a bit more challenging. Um, so I think my, my range has expanded and, and probably more so towards that kind of clear and direct approach, which probably wouldn't be, wouldn't be my natural approach. But as I say, I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm going to throw a, going to throw a slight curveball at you now then because uh, on timings and when you approach success or failure, I'll give you two examples. In football, after a game, I've often heard the coach after the match and the players are in the changing room. Oh, I'm not speaking to them now. You know, it's too emotional. Um, everyone's on. A, I, I'll wait for them all to calm down. And on that end, and then on the other side, special forces post-operation, immediately post-operation, they will have a hot review when potentially there's far more significant things that have just happened to them. But they see that as really crucial when the emotions are high. And I find it fascinating because, you know, you both have their, their reasons. And I'm wondering where you, where you stand on that and whether you thought about that on the, on the timings post-events. I think that hot debriefs can, can be really valuable. You get some really authentic, emotive information there, don't you? And I think at the time, what you felt, and what you reflect back on in your performances can be really accurate, but like you say, live and raw. When the dust settles, maybe that more analytical review of what you've done maybe gives you a little bit of a different kind of angle on it, I think. So I think both have their merits, and I, I suppose kind of linked, you, you'd want a little bit of both, really. You, you'd want the, the here and now, this went well, this didn't go well, I, f- I feel like this, next time I'll do that. And then maybe as the dust, as the dust settles, you can kind of look back on that and un- unpick it a bit more. 
maybe with a bit more data, with a bit more insight, with a bit more capacity to kind of reflect. So I think I think generally I give I like to give space to the athlete for them to kind of quantify and understand what's happened themselves, but be clear about how I want them to use that that time. So when they've finished a race, when they're going to cool down, use that time to just to kind of understand what's happened. So they can get to the point where they can articulate it clearly either to me or to the coach that they're working with to then have that capture. And, and then, like you say, when, when you've got home and you've you've been able to analyse it either yourself as a coach or a performance team, you, you can you can marry up the, the athlete's reflections versus, yeah, maybe with some of the data points that actually did happen and see, see what correlates. That's really interesting the way you said that, because my mind's now thinking if you ask a cyclist after straight after the race and perhaps they've lost or won that race on us on a really important opportunity to over overtake someone and they then on a hot review they tell you exactly what had happened and gone right or gone wrong and you look back at the video and either they're they're absolutely right or they're totally wrong <laughs> yeah. they've got that coat that would and you know and i and i've been in changing rooms in football where players have said you know why didn't you do that why didn't you, and you look at the video and, and they're totally wrong and so then you you go back and think okay, I've got to think about how we're going to put some technical or tactical changes into this team because there's a capacity limit here. Whereas if you saw an athlete that's gone, do you know what? They've absolutely nailed why they did or they didn't win that race. We can probably push on with some advanced tactical ideas and bring them in because, yeah, that's uh, that just flipped in my head, John, just because I thought that's a, you would get quite a lot of information as a result of their answers in the in the moment. Yeah, definitely. What, what what you see as a as a coach, as a, as I suppose a calm coach post race, what you see versus what they see live in the race is really important, isn't it? If there's a gap there, if that's what they've seen and the decisions they've made is are based on either what they've seen or what they're predicting is going to happen. If you're in if you're in a sport where athletes are making decisions live on the pitch or on the track, and it's not you making them for them, you've you've got to yeah, you've got to be confident that they're re- reading the race in the way that you. would want them to I suppose and I suppose with, with every good kind of debrief process you, you compare that against what you like what you intended to do so as you approach this race what what was the plan and then you you review or you debrief it's aligned to what the plan was right it's easy as a coach to pick something out that went wrong <laughs> isn't it why didn't you do this when the plan was ne- never to never to do that in the first place I think to approach um yeah performances with a clear objective of this is how I want to execute this performance and then make sure you're kind of debriefing your review aligns with that so your coaching process isn't just a case of catching people out I imagine that how many coaches are working under you now uh we've got nine Olympic and three Paralympic at the moment yeah so quite quite a range yeah and where do you where do you on the continuum reach out to them as far as guide how much do you let them get on with their job and drop in? How does that process work? I think understanding where, where they're at, what they're doing well is really important. And then aligning the areas in which they need to develop with, with the performance we're looking to create. So if we've got a performance in which there's three key areas in which we're looking to develop, I think where the coach develops needs to align to those things. And like yourself, I think developing the coach in the, in the way which fits where they are so with, with nine, 12 coaches, they're all in a different place. They all coach in a slightly different way. And I, I really want the coaches that I work with to work in a way which kind of underpins their coaching philosophy, but within a framework of 
in, in, in GBCT, this is generally how we work. So what does good feedback look like? What do good session structures look like? What does good planning look like? So there's like a, a framework, but within that framework, you can coach authentically and in your way. The same as an athlete principle, I suppose. It comes back down to maybe that individual athlete approach. You can have one, one event with four athletes in it, how they how they train and approach and and conduct themselves as an athlete can be four different ways, but can create a good performance at the end of it if everyone's doing it in their own way. And cycling's got a great reputation for for their reviews. So whether you know, and, and that's on every level really. That's from you to coaches, coaches to athletes, multidisciplinary teams, case studies around around athletes. For the for the listener, I wonder if you could um, maybe add some colour to how you do look as a group at case studying athletes and whether they're on on target and how the, how you can help them. That's definitely been a really good discussion point, probably since since the Tokyo Olympics. We've I think we've measured and monitored in particular areas, but probably probably not in others. And so I think that reflective process or that debrief process is something that we're still learning to do better. I think a lot of times we've maybe been guilty of when we have been successful, not really picking that performance apart as much as we could have done to understand what worked, maybe what areas either weren't successful or didn't work to then improve for next time I think um yeah you're, you're always put in the in the position in which you need to dissect a performance when you've when you've not been successful and so I think I think we've been detailed and diligent in 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 certain areas of monitoring and and development but maybe not so much in others so going back to that kind of planning process of having a clear idea of what the, the performance destination you're trying to create and, and how you're going to get there what things you you monitor and measure along the way, I think are really key elements to that as well. So whether that's physical development, technical, tactical development, or any other areas of performance in which you think are going to have the big, the big impact. So I suppose it's, it's monitoring the stuff that's relevant to that performance and that, that outcome, I think. Um, but I think the, re- the review process in particular is something we, we're still working on and still need to do better. Even though you've got a great reputation for it as a sport. I, th- I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think, um, like in any sport, the, the sport's evolving really quickly. What has worked and what has made us successful might not make us successful in the future. So a little bit like you said earlier on about unlearning certain habits and, and, and learning new ones as well. I think there are areas in which our kind of coaches impact or coach performance on, on an event. I think we need to understand that more to then develop that more as, as well as the, some of the physical monitoring stuff, which is a bit easier on a bike with power measurement cadence talk and all those all those lovely numbers that come out of her cycling performance I think there's other areas in which we yeah we maybe haven't given the same attention to so I think it's again it's evolving how you create your performance and what you measure relevant to where we want to go and like I said what has created the performance historically isn't maybe the recipe that's going to create that future performance so we've just got to evolve with that with that challenge I think and with that kind of that diet of possible tools at your disposal as a coach and as an athlete to help performance it'd be a bit remiss of me not to mention you know the the amazing reputation cycling's got for marginal gains and finding those opportunities to to just get ahead of the curve and get ahead of the opposition the question i've got is a is a is another two part it's like did you feel you were part of that process as an athlete and you know to what extent or were you just literally getting a helmet put on your head and you were happy to to go oh this one's going to help me get there get around a bit quicker or and as a coach where and and now in your position where do you sit with marginal gains as 
the influence on trying to create still those opportunities to to just be ahead of the opposition by being cleverer? I think reflecting back, yeah, I think I did. I do reflect back on the environment where it felt like we were we were able to kind of unturn the stones and and, and create opportunity to to perform. Um, I think that was still based on I was going to say tradition, but I was I'd probably say the basics. So I think a lot of the the marginal gains philosophy is, is still based around doing the basics really well and an ability to either do them better than the competition. So I, so I suppose it's you can outperform your competition by either training in a different way or having a different philosophy or a different approach to performance, or you can do the same things but do them slightly better. So I think, albeit that kind of marginal gains philosophy yeah, there were certain areas that were really exciting and felt quite cutting edge. They were still based on like good sound performance principles. I don't think we, we turned everything upside down and we're doing things in a completely different way. There's a really interesting thing that's happened in, in cycling in general over the past maybe five to six years. So in the track disciplines, you ride on a track bike, you have one, you have one gear. So you, you can't choose gears, you have one gear you select. And over the past five to six years, the gear ratios that people have been using have been going through the roof people are riding on gears that you would have never thought possible to ride on five or six years ago and sorry is that because john because it's just so hard to get going because of the power that's needed to generate that higher gear that's right yeah so it's a bigger gear on the bike so if you're on a, on a road bike or mountain bike the, the gear where you pedal the slowest and it's the hardest to push that's that's the big gear and so people are using really really big gears they're creating more strength in their athletes they're pedaling slower but able to go quicker because they can get the gear going. And that's that's been a kind of, it's almost been like a cultural shift. The gears have got bigger and everyone's done it at the same time. And you sit here thinking, we, we knew we could use bigger gears five or 10 years ago, but, but no one did. There was a couple of outliers who did, but generally people raced and trained on, on similar kind of gears. And that's been more of a, like a kind of cultural development. It's all just happened at the same time. Everyone thinks they're cutting edge and thinking outside the box, but it's a really good example of everyone's just in a similar thing at a similar time, and that's how the sport's evolved. Have the time's all gone up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are going quicker. There's, there's other things that have contributed to that as well. Bigger gears, more focus on aerodynamics and, and position as well. But it, it's just it's a really interesting reflection on, on a sport that's kind of culturally developed in a particular way in, in which we probably have the brains and the knowledge 10 years ago to understand that maybe a bigger gear and a better riding position is probably the way to go. But it's interesting how there's, it all just kind of happened together. So I, I think that ability, I, th- I think what we did well as the British cycling team was, was starting to develop is, yeah, m- maybe just look at particular areas of the sport which hadn't been as diligently prepared for, whether it be aerodynamics, whether it be riding position or, or equipment, and kind of dug into that in a different way and had a few people involved in the team who looked at it with fresh pairs of eyes rather than coming from that traditional approach. There's a way of passing a rugby ball. There's a, there's a way of positioning on a, on a bike, which is not to say that's the only way it could be done and can be done. But generally things are taught in very similar ways. So again, you either learn to pass the ball quicker or more accurately than everyone else, or you could pass it in a different way. And you can get into the detail on how to strike a like let's use that analogy or pass or how to how, how to strike a football and the the movement and the mechanics around that and the different shapes and you can get into the detail you know the the target of the target um so marginal gains for you then now going forward in your position would you be looking at 
going into the Paris Olympics, would there be anything that you're going, do you know what, maybe and there's a couple of areas here that we could gain a, an advantage that, and then we'll, we'll drop them in at this point. And do you share that with the athlete to give them autonomy or confidence? Or do you go, do you know what, we'll just keep this as we're um, quiet? I think um, from my own perspective, I, I think our, our next games will come, again, it'll come from doing the, doing the basics really well. Are, are we training hard enough? Are we training smart enough? Does the training reflect the event? I think there's basic things like that that we could still learn from and, and do better. And I think in, in sport, do better as well. So I think sometimes at the risk of going for the marginal gains, the little things, the kind of shiny, the shiny bits, before you've got your real basics in place, do we have the right athletes? Are we training in the right way? Do we understand the event demands? Those kind of things, I think, are still, they're still the big chunks. And everyone thinks about those, but I suppose what you choose to do with that information sometimes varies, doesn't it? And I think when you then really kind of boil down those event demands, I think that's where some of the kind of the marginal gain style of things come into fruition. When you've got a real specific idea of the performance you want to create, and maybe some of the ways you can do that differently to the competition, I think. I still think it's the basics. I think I'll, we were to do a podcast in 50 years' time, I think I'd still be rattling on about the basics. <laughs> <laughs> Bikes with massive gears. That, <laughs> or, yeah. or, they, or they've gone the other way and they've got really small gears and suddenly it's become a very tactical, agile type of racing. Who knows? Yeah, that's it. We'll be sat there grumbling about esports and hoverboards, won't we? Yeah. They, you used they, to pedal your own bike in the Olympics back in the day, remember that? <laughs> don't, don't, don't joke, John. You never know. Um, you know, it, again, like from where you are now, um, and you're—I know you provide some, you know, in the, you've done some mentoring on different lumber of different levels in the past. But for you personally, where do you seek your learning and your development from, and do you have any mentors? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think those—I think those different environments that I've got the opportunity to step into every now and then, which is which is great, and I, I probably don't do it as often as I need to, where you can really step back reflect back on how you're working, what you're doing, but see performance created in a really different way. I think that's that's always given me a really kind of fresh insight, driving back into work with full of ideas and a kind of renewed enthusiasm as well. And so I think whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a, a high-performance director, I think your ability to step back from what you're doing, reassess are you doing the right things in the right way, and then step back into that's really important. So I've, I've got people I... I regularly work with and interact with and um, and go and visit, which, yeah, just give me that different perspective, whether it's on me as a person, how I'm developing, how I'm communicating and coming across, or whether it's more kind of performance focused, how does the team work together? Yeah, what other things could we learn from other sports? So I think that, yeah, that, that original journey I started out on as a bike rider, that kind of experimental learning, developing, reflecting and growing, I think I still, I still get really energised by that. And I think whenever there's been a period where I haven't done that, I've kind of felt it in how I've delivered and how I've worked. So I think the opportunity to visit different environments, work with people who challenge you in different ways is really, um, really important to kind of continue, continue your growth. Um, I, th I think having worked in Australia for a, a couple of years, I think seeing how, how different that sporting environment was and it gave me the confidence. Do you know what? There's, there's a few ways you can do this. There's not just one magic recipe. So I think experiencing maybe the environments in which performance is created in different ways, I think um, I think that's probably something that I'm, I'm really, really in, still interested in and probably could learn a lot, a lot from. I think being in a position of 
yeah, of head coach of the GB cycling team, which has had huge success over the past few Olympic cycles. The, the challenge of how do we create that? How do we move forward? What needs to be different? What do we need to start to kind of leave behind a little bit? So I think from that environmental point of view, yeah, there's some great examples of places that I'd love to, love to spend some time in. Yeah, we've we stumbled upon a question that I was going to ask you actually around Australia because you know I'm a, my time that I've I've worked overseas in in Fiji and France and other places has really helped me. You went to Cycling Australia and then you came back into the to the GB program. How beneficial was that to be in a different culture? Massively, I, I think it taught it taught me about the importance of, of culture of, of where not only athletes, but teams and organisations are, the journey they've been on and then what what they need to help them continue to grow as well. So I think it really helped open my eyes, as, I, as I'm sure you've experienced as well, to the importance of listening, learning, understanding before you maybe then add your, your bit to their journey, if you like. And I think hearing the, the kind of conversations that quite a few people are having out there around that the, the long-term journey that teams create and your ability to be part of that for a particular period of time, I, I think thinking about it in that way has given me a really different perspective. So you'll, you'll start any new role or look at any new performance with loads of ideas, loads of opinion, I think, asking really good questions and, and understanding where they've come from to get to this point. And then that helped developing what you think you might they might need to move move forward. So I, th- I think that kind of those cultural differences were really interesting. And I think, I think, um, there's some areas that I probably jumped into a bit quick and the areas in where maybe I was a little bit more patient on, or maybe the areas that kind of felt like they had a bit more of an impact in Australia. And it was really interesting coming back to the GB cycling team after two years and, and feeling what, what had changed. I think that's added a really interesting perspective for me working with current athletes. So the journey that I went through a GB, which is as it was forming and it was, as it was growing and we became more successful, that's, that's a particular perspective and a journey for me. Young athletes who join GB now won't go through that. They'll have a different perspective, a different opinion, and probably a different set of needs for them to develop. So I think I've got to be tuned into that and not assume that, yeah, my journey is everyone's journey. Often when when people jump into different jobs and either they've had a gap or they're moving to a different culture, there's anxiety, you know, naturally when you come in. Did you have any anxiety when you're going back to GB that – crikey they might have moved this program on so far that I don't know what they're talking about or were you like no I'm going to have the confidence here that I've got all this extra skill set now and I'm adding massive value where, where did you sit on that because it's you know it's a it's a natural thing to be feeling you're right it's really interesting I I probably came back feeling that I'd learn I'd learn a different perspective and I could I think I could add maybe something a little bit different to when I'd left two years ago so I think that gave me some confidence. And like we just said, I think that process of joining a new team, a new culture and listening and understanding, I think I was aware of that when I came back and I wanted to join people on the kind of new journey, if you like, rather than come back and tell them the way it need, needs to happen rather than understanding, like you say, what, what had happened in the two years. So I, I think I was maybe, pay, I think I was quite patient this time around and wanted to partner with and work with people to get a really good understanding of, what, what's happened, where are we at now and where do we need to go as opposed to coming here and just shake things up based on my his- historical experiences. Which leads me to one of my last questions, actually, because managing your own energy is difficult as a head coach. And I'm wondering, you know, how you get on with that? Yeah, it, it's, it's something that I'm continuing to learn about 
the role that I'm in and and me as a person. I think there's times where I do it fairly well. I've got a, a young family. I've got I've got three kids, so home life's busy as well as work. And the the, the areas of the times in which I don't do that well, I go straight from a busy family life straight to work, straight back again. And there's no there's no natural break. So I feel I've got to manually put in little breaks and little kind of deloads, if you like, to kind of stay on top of things. I heard a quote the other day about someone who said, you can't, you can't give from an empty cup. So when I'm feeling good, when I'm feeling energized and I've looked after myself, I can, I can be more to more people. So I think when I do it well, I create opportunities at the end of the day to have a little breather, to reflect back on the day, what have I done well? What maybe do I need to be aware of going into the next day? A little bit of time on myself. So when I come back with my family, I'm present. We have some really good time together as a family. And then again, coming into work, I suppose it's like um, a coach version of a warm up and cool down. <laughs> and you're aware of that. You're very much aware of that. And you can, you can, you can be really certain that you can put these things in to allow yourself to keep the energy to the level that you need it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Someone her work with says, bring it's bringing your best self to either your family or to, or to your work. And sometimes you need a little bit of time to get yourself in the right place to do that. So whether it's, I do like a bit of yoga in the morning, just time with myself to stretch, wake up, get my thoughts in order and, and off we go. And it's interesting, the kind of lockdown scenario that we've all gone through. The initial benefit of working in an office in your house is, yeah, you, re, yeah, you reduce the driving time and your commuting and stuff. But I've come to realise that, that that driving and out of work was that protected time just with my thoughts of the day, whether it be a, a podcast or just nice and quiet reflecting on the day, that in certain situations doesn't naturally happen now. So you have to kind of put that into the day somewhere. Do you have any triggers? Do you know anything that you know is going to create a lack of energy from you that, that you need to be aware of? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, yeah, if I, if, I don't, if I don't exercise regularly enough, that, that starts to take its toll. And it doesn't have to be a lot. I think even even 10 minutes yoga a day is 10 minutes of me being connected with my body, thinking how I'm feeling. And yeah, it just reminded me of being an athlete a little bit. But yeah, so that starts to take its toll if I've not done exercise. And I, and I think time for myself as well. Work is busy and people need other people's time to help them do what, what they need to do. So I think time for myself at work can be challenging. Time for myself in a busy household can be. So I think those little windows of just space with your own thoughts reflecting and just thinking about yeah where you're going and and how you're doing it I think it's really important as well my thanks to John Norfolk another fascinating conversation which ebbed and flowed around coaching the individual in front of you and being aware of their learning styles their tales their needs and their wants we all need to understand how we can help ourselves cold showers are a big thing at the moment and so is meditation and mindfulness but it just might not do it for you Hardcore rap banging into your eardrums through your headphones whilst you sip a cup of delightful Lady Grey tea might be exactly what you need to settle your thoughts and yourself. So don't think you're odd or weird or not good enough coach or boss or teacher or partner because you don't subscribe to what's being preached. Jürgen Klopp drinks hot water and plays German wordle when he gets up. He seems to be doing okay. The bit to centre in on is self-awareness. See what gives and what takes your energy and your drive. Be aware of it and help let that slowly hone your routines and your understanding. John is a very easy person to talk to and I can see how athletes and coaches will feel that too. That sense that the person across from you cares and really listens to you is a great skill to have 
and I'm sure more success is around the corner for John and the team. As always, the resources we mentioned in the program will be listed in the show notes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And if you haven't subscribed to the pod yet, click on the follow button on Apple or on your podcast player so that you get a notification when the latest show is available. Please keep those ratings and reviews coming and it would be great to get your suggestions for any future guests. My Twitter, LinkedIn or website pages are probably best for that. This has been Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.